0: Tonight we shall continue with our studies in the Tocqueville. We saw this morning something of the significance in American history of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And we saw that one of the very ugly influences on the church in the early centuries was the influence of Manichaeanism. Now, Manitianism divided the world into two separate domains and as belonging to and created by two different gods, a good god who is a god of spirit, of light, and of mind. And then the other, the bad God, who was the creator of matter, of desire, and of darkness. As a result, the only salvation in Manichaeanism was to withdraw from the world that you didn't belong to. Now, some forms of Manichaeanism said the God of the spirit was the bad God, but it was usually the God who created matter
1: who was regarded as
0: the bad God. So salvation was to withdraw from the material world, to withdraw from desire, to withdraw from everything that was of this world and material. And we saw that this spirit has been very much with us through the centuries, the hippies represented today in their contempt for outward things. The Manichean temperament emphasizes spirituality and says we should be spiritual. Now, when the Bible speaks of being spiritually minded, it does not use it in the same sense. It means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. For from the biblical perspective, we are not asked to be spiritual, in the Manichaean sense, but godly. After all, Satan is a spiritual being, and he is totally evil. Now, the Manichaean retreated from the world. As a result, for him, the essence of the saved man was the one who got as far away from the world and practical things as possible. And because St. Augustine, one of the greatest men in the church, really the father of Roman Catholicism as well as the father of Protestantism, a tremendous amount of good in the man as well as this unfortunate tendency. Because he stressed this aspect it led him to see eschatology the doctrine of the last things in terms of its influence and so his idea of salvation ultimately was to retreat into a convent into a monastery and his eschatology was a mill. It was an eschatology of retreat. Of course, then you know the other type of eschatology, which has a similar influence, and it is free, free will, and it calls for a rapture out of your problems. Whereas, of course, the other eschatology, postmillennialism, calls for conquest. Now, to continue our review very briefly, a little before the Reformation, this latter eschatology began to revive and led to the kind of exploration that Columbus represented. It led in part to the Reformation. It came into its own among the Puritans, and especially in this country. It was, as we saw this morning, and we won't review that, this kind of eschatology, the eschatology of conquest, which for a while died out from 1650 to 1740 in the colonies, was revived by Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Hopkins, and Joseph Bellamy, three Calvinists. And it was their followers that made possible the War of Independence, because they were geared now not to retreat, but to conquest. We're going to see next week what happens, the peculiar results of the surrender of this eschatology in the last century, as it began to hit America. And today it has triumphed. So that there is a withdrawal of the churches that should be out conquering the world, the Bible believing churches, from any action. They're ready to withdraw, to snatch brands from the burning only, and to say, do nothing about the world. That's the social gospel. As one very prominent pastor in California, Dave Vernon McGee of the Church of the Open Door, has very often said, you don't uh, polish brass on a sinking ship. The world is a sinking ship. Let it sink. Don't occupy yourself at all with reform. Now, when we complete our analysis of de Tocqueville, we will return to this matter of eschatology and see how some of the fears of the Tocqueville came to be realized precisely because there was a movement from conquest to retreat and rapture. Now we shall continue our study of the Tocqueville with chapters 15 following of the first volume. De Tocqueville says, and I quote, the very essence of democratic government consists in the absolute sovereignty of the majority, for there is nothing in democratic states which is capable of resisting it, unquote. De Tocqueville then went on to point out that in the old days in France before the revolution, one of the political things of the day was because of the background of the belief in divine rights, the king can do no wrong. And he said the belief is growing up among many Americans because of the democratic sentiment that the majority can do no wrong. And of course, the ancient Creed of democracy had revived, summed up in the Latin phrase, vox populi vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. This, he said, leads to tyranny. Moreover, de Tocqueville went on to say, the law is unstable where a majority is ruled. If you believe that majorities rule, The law is not important. And the time will come when you feel not only that you could change the law at will, but it makes no difference what a constitution says. The will of the people must be done. And so, when you have an emphasis on majority rule, ultimately you destroy the rule of law. Of course, the whole purpose of the constitution was to frustrate precisely this. The Constitution does not provide for majority rule nor for minority rule. It does provide for government by a majority, but for the rule of law. Now you perhaps have noticed in France or in Britain, whenever the administration loses a vote In the House, or in the French Assembly, immediately the government collapses. There has to be a new election, because no longer does the administration have a vote of confidence from the country. It can only stay in office as long as it has a majority vote behind it. This is why sometimes in the past generation, some of the governments in the country of Europe, have changed administrations, sometimes every few months, every year, with with very great rapidity, because they could not, in a crisis, command a majority. And it is especially in a crisis that an administration has the greatest difficulty commanding a majority. Because the more severe the crisis, the more people are ready to change their minds the more fearful they are as the crisis develops day by day and the more unwilling they are to trust the administration. The result is that the more a country moves into a democracy, the more unstable it becomes and the more the tyranny of the majority prevails, Bittokvich said. He went on to say, and I quote, Unlimited power is in itself a bad and dangerous thing. Human beings are not competent to exercise it with discretion. And God alone can be omnipotent because his wisdom and his justice are always equal to his power. But no power upon earth is so worthy of honor for itself or of reverential obedience to the rights which it represents that I would consent to admit its uncontrolled and all-free-dominant authority. When I see that the right and the means of absolute command are conferred on a people or upon a king, upon an aristocracy or a democracy, a monarchy or a republic, I recognize the germ of tyranny, and I journey onward to a land of more hopeful institutions. In my opinion... The main evil of the present democratic institutions of the United States does not arise, as is often asserted in Europe, from their weakness, but from their overpowering strength. Now, mind you, he had said there's not much of an administration in Washington. The federal government and the state governments are very small. So, most Europeans said, The United States is very weak. But he said there is a danger, not because of that weakness, but because of the overpowering strength of the majority. He continues, and I am not so much alarmed at the excessive liberty which reigns in that country as at the very inadequate securities which exist against Germany. When an individual or a party is wronged in the United States, to whom can he apply for redress? If to public opinion, public opinion constitutes the majority. If to a legislature, it represents the majority and implicitly obeys its instructions. If to the executive power, it is appointed by the majority and is a passive tool in its hands. The public troops consist of a majority under arms. The jury is the majority invested with the right of hearing judicial cases, and in certain states even the judges are elected by the majority. However, iniquitous or absurd, the evil of which you complain may be, you must submit to it as well as you can. Then he has a long footnote, a striking instance of the excesses which may be occasioned by the despotism of the majority occurred at Baltimore in the year 1812. At that time, the war was very popular in Baltimore. A journal which had taken the other side of the question excited the indignation of the inhabitants by its opposition. The populace assembled, broke the printing presses, and attacked the houses of the newspaper editors. The militia was called out, but no one obeyed the call. And the only means of saving the poor wretches who were threatened by the frenzy of the mob was to throw them into prison as common malefactors. But even this precaution was ineffectual. The mob collected again during the night. The magistrates again made a vain attempt to call out the militia. The prison was forced, one of the newspaper editors was killed upon the spot, and the others were left for dead. The guilty parties were acquitted by the jury when they were brought to trial. Now, is, it an, is that an extreme example? I don't think so. He put his finger on a real problem when a country becomes ruled by a democratic spirit. I was too young to recall it, but my father often told me of the problems in this country during World War I. The Democrats were in the majority, and they moved us into the war, even though, as later in World War II, Wilson promised not to take us into the war. And the result was that anyone who, after the declaration of war, opposed it, was in serious trouble. In my hometown of Kingsburg, California, Downtown, one farmer happened to express his disagreement with the war, and he said, I don't think we have any business in Europe. But Washington's position was still, he considered the best American position. They immediately uh, were ready to lynch him, and they threw him into jail. As a matter of fact, at the time my cousin started school, By the time I did, about a year and a half, two years later, they had changed the school books. All the school books he used were badly mutilated. Why? Because the Democrats had been so anti-German during the war, they would insisted that every good reference to Germany be taken out of all the textbooks. So they had gone through and cut out pictures of Beethoven and of Bach and of Gacy and other great Germans, and all favorable references. So he said that his textbooks, his school books, were a joke. There were so many things cut out of them. Now that's where the will of the majority leads us. Now he goes on to say, I said one day to an inhabitant of Pennsylvania, be so good as to explain to me how it happens that in a state founded by Quakers and celebrated for its toleration, you free blacks are not allowed to exercise civil rights. They pay the taxes. Is it not fair that they should have a vote? You insult us, replied my informant. If you imagine that our legislators could have committed so gross an act of injustice and intolerance, what then? The blacks possess the right of voting in this country without the smallest doubt. How comes it then, at the polling booth this morning, I did not perceive a single Negro in the whole meeting? This is not the fault of the law. The Negroes have an undisputed right of voting, but they voluntarily abstain from making their appearance. A very pretty piece of modesty on their part, rejoined God. Why, the truth is, they are not disinclined to vote, but they are afraid of being maltreated. In this country, the law is sometimes unable to maintain its authority without the support of the majority, but in this case, the majority entertains very strong prejudices against the blacks, and the magistrates are unable to protect them in the exercise of their legal privileges. What then? The majority claims the right not only of making the laws, but of breaking the laws it has made. Well, you see, he put his finger on a real problem. The country was established to be a republic, to have the rule of law. It was still a godly country, but there were evidences of the growth of democracy and a very serious problems attended thereon. Now... The went on to say, we must make a distinction between tyranny and arbitrary power. This is a very important point. Arbitrary power can sometimes be exercised for the good of the community at large. But tyranny can be exercised by law. Sometimes men have taken the law in their hands, as it were, when they saw an emergency and a crisis, and have acted when the law did not give them any right to act. But it has been for the public good. But, he says, that when there is a tendency to feel that the majority and the law are identifiable, or the majority is the law, you may have no arbitrary power but you still have tyranny. Then he spoke of the power of the majority. And he said, and again I'm going to read because Zitokville is so eloquent. At the present time the most absolute monarchs in Europe are unable to prevent certain notions which are opposed to their authority from circulating in secret throughout their dominions and even in their courts. Such is not the case in America. So long as the majority is still undecided, discussion is carried on. But as soon as its decision is irrevocably pronounced, the submissive silence is observed. And the friends as well as the opponents of the measure unite in assenting to its propriety. The reason of this is perfectly clear. No monarch is so absolute as to combine all the power of society in his own hands and to conquer all opposition with the energy of a majority which is invested with the right of making and of executing the laws. The authority of a king is purely physical and it controls the actions of the subject without subduing his private will. But the majority possesses a power which is physical and moral at the same time. It acts upon the will as well as upon the actions of men, and it represses not only all contest, but all controversy. I know no country in which there is so little true independence of mind and freedom of discussion as in America. In America, the majority raises very formidable barriers to the liberty of opinion. Now, of course, the Tocqueville... Because he was concerned about the future of history, he was trying to understand the United States, trying to see the direction of history. The 20th century has indeed demonstrated that the democratic movement has led to totalitarianism all over the world, to a growing suppression of liberty, that in the name of law, all kinds of arbitrary powers are rather. All kinds of tyrannies have been exercised, and people have submitted to it, as though it were justice. Consider what happened after World War II in Britain, something as revolutionary as anything that Soviet Russia did. A tax which ran well over 100% of a man's income. Forever anyone had any kind of substantial income at least. Well now, supposing you had an income of some substance and some assets, and you were taxed 120 or 145 percent of your income several years in a row, what would you have to do? You would have to put your assets, your art treasures, your estate up for sale. Or else, as in some cases, make a deal with the British government and say, I'll turn over my family castle with all its our to the British government in return for which I have the right to remain here. And so they do remain and they become sometimes guides for the tourists who are escorted through their own house so many hours every day. When it was over, I think there were a half a dozen people in all of England with incomes of something more than 40 or 45,000 a year. They'd wiped them out. That was a revolution. It was a part of the democratic movement. Now, it is interesting that the United States has resisted the end result of that democratic movement more than most countries, but is not resisting it sufficiently. It is... Gaining ground here. The power of an unlimited majority is a tremendous threat. Now, in the 16th chapter, the hope Bill has some very interesting things to say about some of the virtues of the United States. We have touched on some of these previously, but to summarize them very, very briefly, de Tocqueville said that the United States has a centralized government in Washington, but it has no centralized administration or bureaucracy. It has, in fact, a very small, a very weak central government. And so there is a great deal of freedom possible because the central government, as well as the state governments, Governments are relatively weak. Moreover, he commented on the strength of the jury system in the United States. And he said that the jury system requires that the people learn to rule, and to rule well. It requires them to develop the habit of good judgment. He pointed out also a fact to him, uh, very strange, because coming from Europe, where many of the countries, as far as their legal structure was concerned, had departed from Christianity far more than here, and especially from France, his home, where this was especially true, he commented on the fact that in the courts of this country, if you were an atheist, you could not offer testimony as a witness for anyone could only testify in on your own behalf and your testimony was discounted because you were an atheist and you could not. Therefore, on taking the oath, do it in the fear of God. That was a fact for a long time and as a matter of fact, it was only in the last few years that this requirement was dropped by the Supreme Court, overruled in the last state or two where it still remained. Now, in the 17th or, chapter, de Tocqueville writes on the accidental or providential causes which contribute to the maintenance of the Democratic Republic in the United States. And he lists a number of them. The fact that the United States had no powerful neighbor to be a threat to its security and development, no great cities comparable to the European, that the United States is more or less an empty country. As a result, it has the possibility of growth and development. This gives it also a freedom such as people elsewhere do not have. Now, in the course of these comments, he interjects a footnote. He has commented at great length on how well off the people of the United States are, how little government they need in the way of police and the like, because by and large their behavior is so exemplary. He gives a very beautiful picture of the United States by and large, but at one point he expresses great fears and he makes a prediction which did not come true. This footnote is a very important one and it is in the edition of the Tocqueville that you are using. You will find it Chapter 17, the first footnote in the second section, immediately after, principal causes which tend to maintain the democratic republic in the United States. Has anyone found it? uh, It begins, the United States have no metropolis. Do you have a page number so you can give it to someone else? 209? 299. 299. 299. Well, that's an interesting point, uh, that first sentence that I read, because it indicates a great change in the United States. You notice he says, he begins, you, United States, have. It was a plural noun up until about 1861. After that, it began to change into a singular noun. So today we would say the United States has, which indicates what has happened to our legal structure. From being a federal union, it means we have become a national state. A very, very important change. But this is routine in this era. This book was written in the 1830s and published around 1840. in This country in 1841. And this usage was commonplace. Yes. 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 It indicates what's happened to this country. Now, to continue with this important footnote. The United States have no metropolis, but they already contain several very large cities. Philadelphia reckoned 161,000 inhabitants, and New York, 202,000 in the year 1830. The lower orders which inhabit these cities constitute a rabble even more formidable than the populace of European towns. They consist of freed blacks in the first place, who are condemned by the laws and by public opinion, to an hereditary state of misery and degradation. They also contain a multitude of Europeans who have been driven to the shores of the New World by their misfortunes or their misconduct. And these men inoculate the United States with all our vices, without bringing with them any of those interests which counteract their baneful influence. As inhabitants of a country where they have no civil rights, they are ready to turn all the passions which agitate the community to their own advantage. Thus, within the last few months, serious riots have broken out in Philadelphia and in New York. Disturbances of this kind are unknown in the rest of the country, which is nowise alarmed by them because the population of the cities has hitherto exercised neither power nor influence over the rural districts. Nevertheless, I look upon the size of certain American cities, and especially on the nature of their population, as a real danger which threatens the future security of the democratic republics of the new world. And I venture to predict that they will perish from this circumstance unless the government succeed in creating an armed force, which, while it remains under the control of the majority of the nation, will be independent of the town population and able to repress its excesses. Now, the Tocqueville says, the worst sum of Europe are being sent over and are delaying the big cities of the Atlantic seaboard. They are creating slums that are worse than anything the old world has ever seen. This rabble is dangerous. There are already serious riots that have broken out in recent months. And he was afraid that this would overthrow the Republic. Perhaps create a revolution. Unless a standing army were recruited to keep order in these cities. Of course, he said, the rest of the countryside is entirely free of problems like this. Now, how did this problem arise? Well, for a long time, almost in this century, well, really in this century, we had no immigration laws. Anyone could come here. Well, this meant that immediately after We became a free country after the War of Independence. With no longer the British, you see, to prevent foreigners from coming here and to control the immigration here, the various European countries, including the British, felt that a good way to clean their prisons out was to take the prisoners put them on a boat for the United States, pay their fare, and they could buy them. It was cheaper than keeping them in prison indefinitely and feeding them. And they were doing this. And this was not all. Another very serious problem was that, well, if, say, a well-to-do family in England or elsewhere had a no-account son, a black sheep, was a thorough disgrace to the family. They gave him so much money and put him on a boat and said, Go to America. I know a family where there was one such black sheep who had been shipped out by a very well-to-do English family. He came over here, and the family said he made and lost two fortunes. He was a very brilliant and able man. And a terror to everyone. Because his bad character was very definitely there. Family sense has become quite distinguished. But this was not all. Supposing some good family, prominent family in England, had a daughter who got into trouble and was pregnant. This was the ultimate in disgrace, and so... Their method was just to take her down to the docks, put her on a shipboard, and send her to America. Very brutal, but very commonly done. And since these girls had, and this was irrespective of the fact that she may have been very much the innocent party in the situation and had been taken advantage of, but it was their way of getting rid of a problem or an embarrassment. And when she landed in New York or Boston or Charleston or wherever the case might be, the boat was regularly met by pimps, black and white, who knew that such girls were regularly being shipped over and were very helpless and had a small amount of money to help them get started, and so they would meet them with sweet talk and promises and very quickly make prostitutes out of them. So, the Tocqueville was right. The situation in the slums of the big cities was a frightening one, and sometimes the things that occurred there are really staggering. I have a number of books at home that describe the conditions of the slums of New York and other of the eastern cities that uh, are really staggering and hardly fit to read in public. The description of the horrors that were routine and commonplace, is so frightening. In some parts of New York, the police did not dare to go, except in numbers. And yet, there was never a need for a standing army. There was never a revolution, although there were a number of very serious riots of different times. What made the difference? With the worst sons of the Western world, with the scum of Europe being poured into those sons, and boatload after boatload being shipped over, what happened? Remember, we were discussing the tithe agency, the voluntary association. De Tocqueville writes about them, although he wasn't fully aware of all that they did. These tithe agencies were formed to meet every kind of problem and every kind of situation. Little by little with great difficulty, but with great faith and patience. They dealt with these long dwellers. They Christianized countless numbers of them. They prevented any fulfillment of of those prediction. This is one of the most remarkable of thoughts. And we're going to see next week something of how this happened on the frontier. Because the frontier was the place to which the lawless of the United States fled. To escape from the law. And to live off of the law-abiding by robbery and extortion, and every kind of crime imaginable. So, we have a very remarkable fact in the power of these voluntary associations to provide a government. Let me say parenthetically, we have the same problem today. The kind of problem that Tocqueville is writing about, we do have today in Washington, D.C., We have it in Harlem, New York. We have it in other parts of New York. In fact, a good deal of New York today. We have it in San Francisco and in one great city after another, Philadelphia. And it's a problem we need to think about as Christians. I was very interested to continue this little parenthetical observation. When I was in Birmingham, this last October, to meet this very intelligent and very fine young Negro pastor. He had gone to college. I believe he studied law. He worked for the government. And he said he kept trying to reform himself. He was very earnestly trying to be a good man and to provide leadership for his people. But he said trying to reform himself is like trying to erase a little mark on a piece of white paper with muddy hands. He wasn't getting anywhere with his self-reformation. And so he was finally led to Christ, became Christian. And now he was engaged on a very important mission. He had met this Negro from South Africa who had visited this country, a Negro minister. And the Negro minister was appalled by what he saw among his fellow Negroes in the United States. Fewer Christians among them than in South Africa, for many of them are still living in very primitive conditions and unevangelized, but a higher ratio of Christians Among the blacks in South Africa. When this Negro pastor went back to South Africa, he was so upset and distressed by what was happening here because he said the Negroes of the United States should be leaders of the Negroes of the world. And they are going back into barbarism because of their lack of faith. He asked the Negro churches of South Africa to send him here as a missionary. And he wrote this young man who has also become a minister, and they are planning to develop a mission to their own people in the sons of this country. Now, in a sense, this is the kind of thing, you see, that the culture was talking about. The voluntary associations that create changes in this country. In this case, we're getting an assist from South Africa. But it is a very remarkable and an important fact. Then de Tocqueville continues, and he declares there are three factors giving strength to the United States. He says, the first is the federal form of government which enables the United States to combine the power of a great empire with the security of a small state. Under federalism, you have all the security that a small country gives you in each of the states, and you have also the power of a great empire. The second is the municipal governments which limit the power of the majority of the country and therefore develop on the local level a freedom and an independence of the greater tenancy of the country. And the third, he said, is the judicial power. The courts, he says, do serve to a great degree to, to repress the excesses of democracy. We will stop at this point for a break before we continue with the talker.